All right, good morning and welcome. Um, We are this week going to be concluding our study on the doctrine of God's providence. Um, So let's want to open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your goodness to us, uh, for sustaining us through another week, for bringing us together, uh, giving us the opportunity and the means to gather as your body, as the church of Jesus Christ. And we acknowledge uh, you in in bringing us together, not only uh, physically in this place this morning, uh, but Lord, by your grace, uh, bringing us together into uh, joining us with Christ uh, by your spirit, um, calling us, electing us, um, and gathering us spiritually as well. Uh, Lord, as we uh, open your word uh, and, and seek to Uh, learn and know more of you. Uh, We ask that your spirit would move and work in us, speak to us, uh, filtering so that we hear uh, what is right, uh, that what is true takes root in our hearts, uh, and that we might be um, encouraged, emboldened, uh, strengthened in our faith. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, to open, I want to read uh, Psalm 147. Um, Today, uh, and just as a preface of how we're going to do this this morning, Uh, Last week we discussed um, sin and evil uh, as as how God uses sin and evil uh, in the system of his providence, how he uses it as means to accomplish things, how he not only permits sin and evil to exist and persist, uh, he decrees it uh, and the mystery that that holds for us and yet the glory uh, contained in that idea. Um, I, I felt like things moved pretty fast last week. Uh, there was a lot of ground that we covered, and it's, it's difficult uh, if you're first kind of wrestling with these ideas. Um, so I want to kind of recap a little bit some of the conclusions and observations from last week, and, and then move into Lesson 5, uh, the next few sections of, of the Westminster Confession. Uh, but to begin, I want to read Psalm 147. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant, and praise is beautiful. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers together the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He counts the number of the stars. He calls them all by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked down to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praises on the harp to our God, who covers the heavens with clouds, who prepares rain for the earth, who makes grass to grow on the mountains. He gives to the beast its food and to the young ravens that cry. He does not delight in the strength of the horse. He takes no pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his mercy. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for he has strengthened the bars of your gates. He has blessed your children within you. He makes peace in your borders and fills you with the finest wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs very swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters the frost like ashes. He casts out his hail like morsels. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He causes his wind to blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and his judgments to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation. And as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise the Lord. So last week, again, we, we discussed uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 5, Section 4. Uh, and we've come to the, the part of 
uh, a study of the doctrine of God's providence, again, dealing with sin and evil. How does that fit in? If God is all-powerful, if he's governing all things, uh, why and how does sin uh, work into that system, into his sovereignty? Um, And so I just, uh, before, again, I'm just going to kind of run through some conclusions, some observations uh, from last week. So we're not going to go in depth, um, but I do want to kind of tie it up uh, with some just kind of conclusions. But I want to read that section first, um, section 4 of chapter 5 in the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, summarizing the teachings of Scripture. The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that it extendeth itself even to the first fall and all other sins of angels and men, and that not by a bare permission, but such as hath joined with it a most wise and powerful bounding, and otherwise ordering and governing of them in a manifold dispensation to his own holy ends. Yet so as the sinfulness thereof proceedeth only from the creature and not from God, who, being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. So the two big uh, points, the two main uh, ideas that we discussed last week um, are that God not only permits sinful acts, but he directs and controls them to the determination of his own purposes. And second, that the sinfulness of these actions is only from the sinning agent. And God in no case and in no way is either the author or approver of sin. Uh, These are the doctrines of scripture that are clear. And we ran through uh, last week a lot of scriptures that demonstrate and prove that. Uh, But I want to, again, just just run through a series of observations. Um, You know, this can be difficult, um, but God gives us uh, the faith and the understanding to do so. Many things in, uh, in our faith, in our belief, um, are, uh, we are only able to wrestle with them, only able to grasp them, only under, able to believe uh, by the Spirit uh, alone, working in our hearts. Uh, and so with the eyes of faith, it's not so difficult. Uh, and I can, I can tell you that from my own perspective. I wrestled with these uh, ideas uh, for a long time. Um, and, and these conclusions have, and observations have helped me greatly. So I'm just going to read through uh, some things um, that we've seen already in the confession, that we've talked about and seen in scripture, and that we discussed last week. Um, so uh, first, God has decreed from eternity past and predestined whatsoever comes to pass. And apart from his decree, nothing comes to pass. Uh, everything happens by his decree. Nothing happens apart from God's decree and his will. The almighty power and government of God over his creation is total and complete, extending even over the actions, thoughts, wills, and hearts of sinful men and fallen angels. If there is any corner of God's creation, any corner of man's heart, that God does not exercise total, complete sovereignty and and government over, then we have accepted some form of deism. Um, that, that God leaves us to our own devices, that he is not God, in essence. Uh, scripture rejects that, and we must reject that as well. Uh, next, God's righteous law and all his holy commandments are binding upon all creatures without exception. They are declared uh, to them, his, his decrees, his commands are declared to them in creation and made known to them in Scripture as his revealed will. The fullness of God's decree, especially regarding what will come to pass, 
whether and how his creatures will keep his commands, and why God orders things to fall out or happen as they do, is known only to God and is his secret or unrevealed will. So we didn't really get into this last week, but there's the idea of God's revealed will. These are his commands, his decrees to us, um, his personal commands. Uh, the, the, uh, the Ten Commandments uh, are, are the summation of God's moral law that are his revealed will for his creation. And yet we look around and observe that that does not always come to pass. People do not always keep his law. That's very clear to us. It's clear to us that we break his law every day. Uh, so we are, in a sense, violating God's revealed will. And yet there is a secret will uh, that God has that uh, governs how things actually play out. Uh, why do things happen as they do? To what extent will his creatures keep his commands? These are the mysteries of God. Uh, and we know this, uh, in, in uh, theology knows this as God's secret will. Um, it's known only to himself. We see it play out in history. Uh, we, can, we can understand his promises of, in a larger sense, what will come to pass. Uh, but there are mysteries there. It's, it's his secret will, how things will play out. Next, God does whatsoever he wills. And in everything, he is most holy, advancing holy ends and purposes. There is no sin in God. There is no, uh, as, as it is sometimes said, no winking at sin. There is no, uh, if, you know, we, we just went through a sermon series in Leviticus. Much of that deals with the holiness code that declares to us the, the complete holiness of God. Uh, nothing can be in his presence. He cannot abide anything that is not perfect and holy. Next, sin's entry into creation at the first fall and every other sin of men and angels occur not only by God's permission, but also at his decree and according to the unsearchable counsel of his own will. Uh, again, we see that sin entered the world. We see it in scripture. We see it around us. We see it in our own hearts. Uh, and, and so we must accept the fact that God decreed that to be. If he is totally sovereign, if he governs all things, God has decreed these things to come to pass. This is a great mystery. Next, God, by his providence, orders all things and events, including sinful acts, in such a way as to effectually and certainly accomplish all his decreed purposes. Uh, so we see sin and wickedness playing out, and yet we are told by Scripture, and we can see through in Scripture and, and in history, uh, that God orders and governs these things uh, to, to happen, to bring about his will. So he is still in control. While we do not know and cannot answer why God does all that he does in the way that he does them, Scripture tells us clearly that God's ultimate or final purpose is his own glory. Uh, and there are other reasons given uh, in Scripture for why God orders things as he does. Uh, there are, there are um, in, in more limited ways, uh, things that happen in Scripture that God declares to us. Uh, he tells us why he's doing them. And some of them we went over last week. Um, he tells us, uh, he does things, uh, even allowing and decreeing sin and wickedness, so that we might know that he alone is God. Uh, we see that in Exodus, as he, uh, he tells Moses and Israelites that uh, he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart, uh, so that he might obtain uh, honor over, uh, over Pharaoh and his armies, uh, so that Israel will know that he alone is God. The same is true for us. These things happen so that we might know that he alone is God. He is powerful even over the rebellious heart. 
We are told He does these things so that His wonders may be multiplied. That we might believe and have life in Christ. That's John 20, verse 30. That, we, uh, that He might be glorified in His saints. He says that in 2 Thessalonians. He says uh, that things fall out as they do so that our hope and our faith might be in God. He says that in 1 Peter 1. And another way that we can think about this is uh, that by ordering, uh, by allowing, ordaining, and ordering sin, God reveals to us more fully His holiness. A number of His attributes, but uh, certainly His holiness. How could, we know, how could we know the fullness of His holiness unless we know His disdain for sin? Uh, we see all throughout Scripture how God despises and hates, abhors sin. That's another way of declaring to us, revealing to us His holiness in a more, uh, more complete way. We see His power. No rebel can escape or overthrow the rule of God. Think about Jonah running away from God. God ordained a storm and a fish and, and all of these things uh, in, in supernatural ways, controlling His creation uh, to declare to us and to Jonah that you cannot escape uh, from my commands, from my control. You cannot escape my eye. And clearly we see more fully uh, God's wrath. Romans 1.18 says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God's wrath is not some secondary quality that, that we, uh, we should be afraid of. I mean, we should be afraid of it, but we should not be afraid to wrestle with it, deal with it. Uh, it is in Scripture. Uh, it's a part of His character. It's a part of His attributes. Uh, and God reveals it in order that He might be glorified. And that uh, we might know uh, his his uh, know his wrath uh, and and rightly fear and revere uh, his character. We certainly see his justice. No, uh, he will by no means pardon sinners. Um, his his justice is complete. So even though we look around and see to our eyes uh, with with the writer to the Psalms that uh, wicked men escape seem to escape God's judgment in the short term. We know, certainly, that they will not escape in the end. And we see God's love and His mercy. Uh, the, the lengths to which He will go for His own, to rescue them, to redeem them. Uh, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And how can there be mercy if there is not judgment uh, that, is, um, that is due? So again, these are just some, some observations, uh, some conclusions. Um, and I was going to go through uh, a kind of a, um, an example in Scripture, again, looking at uh, the nation of Israel going to Egypt, how that came to be, how they became enslaved, and how God rescued them. Um, but I don't, have, I don't think I have time to go through it all. Um, but suffice it to say, um, they came to Egypt because Joseph was sold into slavery. Now, that was not good. That was sinful. And yet, Joseph acknowledges... Um, and we can acknowledge with him that God did that to preserve life during a severe famine in, that covered uh, much of the land. We don't know how much, but uh, it affected the land of Canaan where Joseph's family was. Um, and because God put Joseph um, in Egypt as a slave and then orchestrated things to raise him to second in command over Egypt, God used that to preserve his people to uh, preserve his covenant with Jacob uh, and with the people of Israel. And then even though they were uh, again put in bondage as a nation, 
God brought them out by His own power, hardening Pharaoh's heart, so that Israel might know that He was God and the power uh, that He is willing to and, and eager to display for His people. The miraculous uh, uh, deliverance through the Red Sea, uh, an act that was simultaneously judgment against Egypt and deliverance for His people. The same act um, in, in parting the Red Sea and then crashing it down on, on, uh, on the people of Egypt, the, the armies of Egypt, was simultaneously judgment and mercy. There's much for us to, to meditate on there uh, about, about the providence of God. So I'll leave that there. Um, these are, this is something that we can uh, track through the, the history of God's covenant with His people, uh, through Scripture, through church history, um, that God orchestrates things, even over sin and wickedness, uh, so that His love, His mercy, His attributes, um, who He is, might be made manifest to us, that He might be glorified as He is, and worshipped rightly. Uh, but I do quickly want to bring up uh, three errors that we want to avoid um, as we deal with these things. If, if we accept um, that God governs and even decrees sinful acts, um, there are things that we want to avoid. The first is, as Scripture describes it, charging God with sin. Uh, uh, the confession puts it, um, and I, I can't remember, I, I neglected to write down um, which, but I think it's in the uh, larger catechism. Uh, dealing with uh, what sins are prohibited in the first commandment, uh, that there are no other gods uh, save our God, uh, that we sh- uh, one of the things prohibited is to charge God foolishly for sin. Um, Job one twenty two says that in all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. We ought not do that either. Again, he is neither the author nor approver of sin, and we ought never to charge God with the sin. Uh, the sin uh, is with uh, the sinner alone. James 1.13 says, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Uh, so we must guard against charging God for, with responsibility for sin. Um, that is wrong, and Scripture uh, declares that that is not the case. Another is um, bold and curious searching. That's the one uh, that comes from the Westminster Larger Catechism. I don't think the other one does, so forgive me for that. Uh, bold and curious searching into the secrets of God. Um, we do want to uh, seek after God, but we seek Him in Scripture. And beyond Scripture, we do not go, and we should not go, uh, to try to wrestle with uh, and make sense of the mysteries of God. The larger catechism, uh, section, uh, question and answer 105, uh, what are the sins forbidden in the first commandment? One of those is bold and curious searching into the secrets of God. Uh, De- Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine says... The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Uh, and the last error that, that uh, I, I certainly want to um, warn you against um, is, is excusing sin. If you acknowledge and confess with Scripture what we have seen, that God's sovereignty extends to even the wicked acts of men, such that the wickedness they do is said to be ordained by God, decreed by God, you may find crouching at the door of your heart the temptation, the temptation to excuse your sin or the sin of another by saying something like, it is no matter that I've done this or that sin. God not only foreknew it, He decreed it. And He's using it for my good and for His glory. Therefore, my sin must be God's will. 
that's a dangerous, dangerous uh, thing to conclude from this doctrine. Again, meditate on the holiness of God um, and, and His revealed will. Again, He commands us uh, to, to obey His law and His word. Uh, and we are never given an excuse. By His uh, sovereign providence and grace, He uses uh, and overcomes our sin. Um, but all of the punishment, again, He is totally just and by no means pardons the sinner. All of the punishment for our sin is laid on Christ. And we ought not heap up uh, that punishment by um, licentiously um, engaging in sin. Uh, So beware, lest a licentious spirit take hold. And by rejecting the goodness of God's law in that way, you confirm yourself to be a son of perdition. It is in God's wrath that he will manifest his glory in such a man. Uh, So be, be, be wary. Uh, and if that is something that creeps into your heart, I would urge you uh, to, to go and, and listen to Pastor Sharp's sermons on this topic from Romans 3. Uh, the idea of, of antinomianism, uh, that, that the law is not binding on us because God's grace is so, uh, so great and so all-encompassing. Um, so I'll leave that there. Those are the things that I wanted to share to wrap up Lesson 4, dealing with sin, uh, the, the providence of God at work uh, in sin and wickedness. And so now we'll go into uh, Lesson 5, dealing with uh, Chapter 5 in the Confession, Sections 5 through 7. And there's much to be said about each of these sections individually. Um, but uh, from the handout, I'm going to focus on the first two points of doctrine um, that, again, A.A. Uh, a. Hodge um, describes and, and as he kind of organizes things. But first, I'm going to read these uh, in full. Sections 5, 6, and 7 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 5. Section 5 says, The most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptation and the corruption of their own hearts, to chastise them for their former sins, or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, that they might be humbled, and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself, and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin, and for sundry other just and holy ends. We see even in the believer a particular working of God's providence over the temptation we find in our own hearts, the indwelling sin in our flesh, as Pastor Sharp has preached about in Romans. Uh, God is at work. His providence is at work there as well. Certainly over, uh, over uh, the unrepentant, as we discussed um, more last week, but definitely in his own children as well. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, section 6 says, As for those wicked and ungodly men, whom God, as a righteous judge, for former sins doth blind and harden, from them he not only withholdeth his grace, whereby they might have been enlightened in their understandings and wrought upon their hearts, but sometimes also withdraweth the gifts which they had and exposeth them to such objects as their corruption makes occasion of sin. And withal gives them over to their own lusts and temptations of the world and the power of Satan, whereby it comes to pass that they harden themselves even under those means which God useth for the softening of others. So that's the idea that God 
the same thing that the same means by which he works grace in the hearts of his believers, harden the hearts of unbelievers and and increase uh, their uh, their sin, confirm them in sin even. Section seven says, as the providence of God doth in general reach to all creatures, so after a most special manner it taketh care of his church and disposeth all things to the good thereof. So again, there is much to be said about each of these sections individually, but what we see taking all three of those as a whole uh, is something uh, very special that I want to focus on. Again, uh, coming from Hodge, but I want to expand on it a little bit. So the first point of doctrine that we see is that God applies His providence differently toward different parts of His creation. There is a particular providence at work and applied uh, to particular aspects or parts of His his, um, creation. Hodge says uh, says it this way, uh, and this is in the handout, that the general providence of God embraces within one comprehensive system several subordinate systems intimately related as parts of one whole yet also distinct in their respective methods of administration and in the immediate ends designed. The principle of these are the providence of God over the material universe, the general government of God over the intelligent universe, the moral government of God over the human family in general, and the special gracious dispensation of God's providence toward His church. So we see this Increasing particularity, this increasing special care that God has and special purposes that He has. This is another way of declaring the covenant love of God. We don't have time to get into uh, the doctrine of covenant, um, but it's enough to say, I think, that the kind of relationship you have, your spiritual position before your Creator, determines how God relates His preservation, His government, and His concurrence, the three aspects of His providence towards you. How God relates to you in His providential work and acts uh, depends in large part to uh, where He has positioned you uh, in terms of uh, His grace. And we can use the language of Romans. Are, Are you at enmity with God? Left in your sin? Certainly God deals with you a certain way. Are you in Christ? Uh, Are you a part of His body? Certainly God deals with with you in a a special, caring, fatherly way. But we can look, I think, um, at the covenants of God declared in Scripture to see this. Um, We see a providence over the material universe. Jeremiah 33 speaks of God's unbreakable covenant with the day and night, testifying to his constant preservation and care for his creation. He says, uh, I won't read it, but I'll I'll summarize that in, in Jeremiah 33, he talks about, if you can break my covenant with the day and the night, then my covenant with my people will be broken. Uh, Declaring to us the security, not only that we have, uh, but that his creation has. Uh, He does not create things uh, he declared it to be good, and his, his good purposes continue, though the world is, is broken and fallen in sin. <coughs> Excuse me. 
Uh, Next, we see God's moral government over the intelligent universe. Uh, Creatures and beasts with an intelligence, uh, God applies his providence uh, as a general providence seen in preservation and and a moral government. I do want to read in Genesis 9, God's covenant with Noah. It is with Noah, but God also declares it to be a covenant with every beast of the earth. Verses 12 through 16. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be the so- for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God promised never again to destroy all flesh by a flood. He commanded mankind to care for life and commanded him not to eat animal meat with the blood. Uh, That's a little bit earlier. He also states that he will demand a reckoning even from beasts who shed man's blood, indicating a general moral government even over animals, um, but also a special care over humans as made in his image, over mankind. Which brings us next to... uh, well, I think we can... I, I, I can't remember, and I, I should, but I can't remember... We, we know that as the Noahic covenant. But I think for our purposes, we can describe that as a covenant of preservation. Uh, to, to use our language of providence, God promised there to Noah and to all the creatures of the earth that he would preserve life uh, always. <clears throat> uh, next, we see God's moral government over humanity. Again, as we said before, God's providence, his government, uh, encompass a binding moral law and a judicial relationship. Especially after the fall, we stand in uh, judgment, in a state of judgment. But all men have a particular um, relationship to God that is more, uh, a higher accountability than the animals do. God made man in his image. And gave to us dominion over the rest of creation. God takes a special interest in preserving man's life. And again in Genesis 9 verses 5 through 7. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it. From the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply multiply in it. But mankind in general is joined with Adam in a covenant of works. Placed under a curse by Adam's sin. And the life of the unrepentant is preserved for wrath. Psalm 76.10 says, Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. With the remainder of wrath, you shall gird yourself. So we see God governing uh, all of humanity in a special way that encompasses a moral government, uh, a judicial relationship. We stand accountable to God, uh, especially for those of us 
those who remain in sin. But then we see a special, gracious providence toward His church. If you are a part of the church, a member of Christ's body, the government of God is no longer of a judicial nature, but takes on the qualities of a fatherly care and discipline. The judgment has been satisfied in Christ at the cross. And so we now are, are secure in a covenant of grace, accomplished, uh, secured in Christ. We're no longer in Adam. We are in Christ. We're joined with Abraham in a covenant of grace. Together with Abraham, not joined with Abraham, but together with Abraham, uh, joined um, as one in Christ. We're justified and declared righteous by faith. And as a member of the church, the body of Christ, by God's providential care, all things work together for your good. As it says in Romans 8.28. So we see that God relates differently to different parts of His creation in a special way. His providence is applied in different ways. As a second point of doctrine in these sections of the Confession, we see that there is a relation of subordination subsisting between these several systems of providence as a means to, in, to ends in the wider system which comprehends them all. In other words, each system of God's providence that we described toward, uh, toward the material universe, toward the intelligent universe, toward human family in general, and toward His church, they are subordinate to one another uh, and, and serve as a means to a still more glorious system of providence. I want to read from Hodge. He says it this way. This is a little bit... It's about a paragraph. He says this. Thus, the providential government of the material universe is subordinate as a means to an end to the moral government which God exercises over His intelligent creatures, for whose uh, residence, instruction, and development... The physical universe was created. God created the physical universe in order to bring about and to uh, provide for uh, intelligent creatures, especially man. Thus also, the providential government of God over mankind in general is subordinate as a means to an end to His gracious providence toward His church, whereby He gathers it out of every people and nation. And makes all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. Again, Romans 8.28. And of course, for the highest development and glory of the whole body. And then he says this, The history of redemption through all its dispensations, or we can say administrations, patriarchal, Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Christian, that history is the key to the philosophy of human history in general. The race is preserved. Continents and islands are settled with inhabitants. Nations are elevated to empire. Philosophy and the practical arts, civilization and liberty are advanced that the church, the Lamb's bride, may be perfected in all her members and adorned for, husband, uh, for her husband. What a glorious truth that is. The, the providence that God exercises toward His church, toward us, the body of Christ, uh, is the highest order of God's providence. All other exercises of His providence in creation, uh, over, uh, over the day and night, over creatures, over the material universe, uh, even over uh, sinful and wicked men, 
serve the purposes God has for His church, which in turn serves the the purposes He has for Himself, for His glory, which again, as we've been discussing, is the highest end, the ultimate end of the providence of God and all His works. And praise God for that. God's providential government over all creation serves as a means to establish, preserve, and glorify His church. We who are in Christ can claim the promises of God as a particular, special, and secure hope that through all of creation, every part of our lives, every moment, every joy, every sorrow, every temptation, every failure, every triumph, all things God by His providence orders for our good and for His glory. Philippians 1.6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that He who has began, uh, begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Do you understand how many things God must order in your life in order to bring that about? Consider your life up to now. All of the things that God has done, all of the people in your life, uh, all, of, all, of, um, all of your history has brought you to the place He has you now. And He will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's a promise. That His, his providential care, His fatherly love for you, will continue and preserve you and sustain you. Again, it's the, the Calvinist idea of the, the perseverance of the saints. His saints will be preserved and will persevere. It's a promise from Scripture. I want to read Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. As we conclude this section. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God? Who also makes intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul there is concluding a section on our assurance, the assurance of our salvation. But we can take that as well as a promise that He will sustain us, that His providence is taking special care of His church always. And that all things are serving that purpose and nothing can work against that purpose. So, we're out of time. Um, So to conclude our study, providence is that act of God by which from moment to moment He preserves and governs all things. Providence encompasses His preservation, His government, and His concurrence. 
In the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, chapter 5, we saw in section 1 that God's providence extends to each and every part of his creation, from the greatest to the least. And that he exercises his providence according to the counsel of his own will, to the ultimate purpose of exercising his eternal decree and manifesting his own glory. We saw in sections 2 and 3 that God ordinarily exercises providence using means or secondary causes, but that he nevertheless remains free to act without, above, or against those second causes at his pleasure. In section 4, we saw that God not only permits sinful acts, but he directs and controls them to the determination of his own purposes. And in sections uh, 5 through 7, we saw that God exercises his providence in particular ways toward various parts of his creation. And we saw that every system of God's providence is a means that he uses to the end of the special providence he exercises toward his church. I want to wrap up by reading Numbers chapter 6. Verses 24 through 26. And I, I, I hope that you can hear this in light of all that we've studied about God's providence as a blessing and promise for His people that is secure because of His providential uh, control. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, we are humbled in examining Your Word and the doctrines it proclaims and the truth it declares to us. You are God. You are sovereign and holy. And Your government extends to all things. We thank you for the special love and care you have for your church and for every believer you hold in your hand. We thank you that no one can take you out of your hand. We ask, Lord, that you would confirm uh, to us these truths, you would apply this truth in our hearts, that you would strengthen our faith. And, Lord, that you might be glorified and worshipped as you are and not as we wish you to be or might devise you to be in our hearts. Lord, as we prepare ourselves for corporate worship, let us hear your call to gather, your call to worship. Let us clear away and set aside the labors and cares of the week. And Lord, we ask that your spirit might move even this morning to do a mighty work through the preaching, through the word, and through prayer in the hearts of your people. And that you might be glorified. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.